The business of culture, the culture of business, markets, policy, media, and technology, authors, much more. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. There are great advantages of being an emerging market investors now because you see that there's a lot of fear out there related to Russia, uh, related to uh, geopolitics. But that doesn't mean those companies, those businesses that we're looking at will disappear. It's the opposite. They will become stronger in these type of environments. They're going to get bigger because they have better balance sheets. They have better cash flows and they have a product or, or, or service that is differentiated. Emerging markets investing is in a lost decade. Meanwhile, for years, the world has bid up darling U.S. stocks like Apple and Amazon, which is interesting as emerging markets had one of their best decades precisely when America had its lost decade to start this century. Are we on the verge of another inflection? Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at link fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate, and recommend us. A shout out to our broadcast partners, WVTF, Virginia Public Radio across the Commonwealth, WERA in Northern Virginia and much of Washington, D.C., WPVM in Asheville, North Carolina, and KPPQ out in Ventura, California. Holler if you, too, would like full disclosure on your air. Joining me from Victoria, British Columbia, is Chalar Somek, Portfolio Manager for Global Emerging Markets at the British Columbia Investment Management Corp. It manages about $200 billion in assets on behalf of the province's public sector. You've been covering emerging markets for much of this century, sir, and you've always been a trusted source. <laughs> How are you? Good. Thank you, Robin. I, I, thankfully, I'm not that old. Uh, century, <laughs> maybe decade. Uh, yeah, I, it, two decades almost. Uh, I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, let's talk about let's talk about those two decades because you don't hear people talk about emerging markets much anymore, and people seem to forget that the United States, after its last investment boom, and some people, you know, was obviously in hindsight an investment bubble at the turn of the century with dot com blowing up. After that, the U.S. had its lost decade. Between 2000 and 2009, I believe the worst performance for the Standard & Poor's 500 index since the Great Depression, emerging markets picked up the baton and had one of their best decades of performance ever. In the 12 or 14 years so since, emerging markets have had a lost decade of sorts. The United States has been gangbusters. You've seen the Dow well above 30,000, the NASDAQ not just break 10,000, but 15,000. What are your thoughts when you think back to kind of that baton of leadership? We used to talk about emerging markets all the time, and now they're hardly ever discussed. Yeah, I, I actually smile when I hear these comparisons because, you know, as you know, when, when you talk to uh, investment managers or advisors, financial advisors, they will always uh, write in fine print, you know, under the returns, uh, the past, you know, returns are not a reflection of the future returns. So the past doesn't necessarily repeat itself. We are all going through cycles. Obviously, some cycles are short business cycles. Some are long structural cycles. 
And I would say, yes, I mean, the last 10 years, the U.S. has benefited from multiple tailwinds and has outperformed the rest of the world. But it doesn't necessarily mean that fine print works both ways. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that the U.S. and, and you know, much of the developed economies will be the best performers in the next decade. You know, so it's, it's, it's really uh, for, for us, you know, for long term institutional investors, we, we have to make that distinction and we have to think, you know, and, and basically uh, avoid being influenced by headlines and, and try to pick the right spots, right, right sectors, right countries and, and take a long term view. I'm looking at the table provided by Charlie Bellello. Uh, he provides these tables on Twitter every now and then, asset class total returns since 2011. If you take the benchmark United States Standard & Poor's 500 index, which is large cap stocks, you know the multinationals, Amazon, Procter & Gamble, Coca-Cola and everything, between 2011 and 2022, uh, this has returned cumulatively, what is it, 320%. And that's about 13.5% per year. If I compare that to emerging market stocks, the emerging market index has done 11.9% overall and 1.0% annualized per year. Um, it's not even comparable. And you have to wonder at this point if uh, people who are told to keep the faith and trust in the asset class kind of always kind of cry uncle. They say, I'm missing out. The opportunity cost is too huge to not be overwhelmingly in United States growth. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the answer is, uh, is, is obviously for, for investors, especially if either you're individual investor, you're looking at your retirement or your, your institutional investor and managing a retirement fund. The answer is really having diversified portfolios, depending on your risk appetite. It changes. If you're young and you, you, you want to look at the next 20, 30 years of savings, you still want to be exposed to countries and sectors that are going to give you some level of diversification. Now, it's true that the last 10 years, the U.S. has done very well for some obvious reasons. And then the biggest reason, I would argue, is that the liquidity was abundant. You know, Fed actually came in and, and you know, gave huge support to the economy by the way of printing dollars and giving almost like free money you know, it was really easy credit environment, so people could borrow, uh, in, and some of these borrowings went to, into the stock market. Some went into s new instruments like coins, sure. and 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 therefore the, the the liquidity, the abundant liquidity, you know, created a sort of like a demand uh, for all sorts of asset classes. This goes from real estate to stock market. Now, the rest of the world did not have that luxury. You know, many emerging markets, obviously, they, they're more restricted in their efforts to stimulate. Even, you know, during COVID, we've seen the same thing. Uh, emerging markets have behaved or, or had to behave a lot more responsibly in terms of stimulating their economies. They couldn't give handouts. You know, they, didn't have, they couldn't print money because they knew that if they printed their currencies, there would be implications for the long term. Of course, there were some bad apples in the emerging markets. We've seen Turkey, for example, has printed a lot of money and, and, you know, you've seen credit growth exceeding nominal GDP. And now Turkey is paying the price for it in, in the, in the way of inflation. So, and, and then the, the, the last point I, I want to make on this is that emerging markets is not a homogeneous universe. I mean, there are roughly 20 countries and, you know, very distinct with very distinct features. So when we talk about emerging index is a fairly diversified index. Uh, we have Asia represents about 75 to 80% of uh, the universe. 
And Asia, is, as we all know, is, is going through major changes in the way of, you know, economies diversifying, getting more and more technology. So we're seeing structural changes that we feel will, will play out in, over the next 10 years. You know, back in 2001, the term BRIC was coined by Wall Street economist Jim O'Neill, this this acronym referring to the countries of Brazil, Russia, India, China, the BRICS, these strong pillar developing countries that were at a stage of advanced economic development on their way to becoming like the United States and Germany and the developed countries. And this was a big thing. You started seeing ETFs and all sorts of investment products in this first decade of the century as Russia was thriving, riding the higher price of oil. Clearly, China, with its ascension to the World Trade Organization in 2001, Brazil was really resurgent as this giant of South America. India, with a one of the world's largest democracies and a booming lower middle class, if you will, a consumer class. Nobody is talking about this anymore. Clearly, <laughs> Russia, which is kind of with its with its invasion, its campaign, as it calls it, in Ukraine, has been unceremoniously booted from the world financial system, and everybody has you know brought it into pariah status. And the currency there and the markets have collapsed. And Brazil, which has kind of been a fiscal basket case and a recessionary case for the better part of 10 years. Yeah, uh, I would probably not put, I mean, it's it's obviously uh, a lot of this is marketing gimmick. Uh, the break, you know, combining countries that have nothing to do with each other. Uh, one, one maybe common theme is that the demographics, you know, these are large population the countries that provide obviously very diversified uh, sectors and exposure to different trends but it's 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 easy to kind of like uh, use those gimmicks it's it's a different thing to invest in the stock market of these countries and you know we are essentially emerging markets investors the common denominator for us is that these countries start their business and economic cycle you know they're they're probably 20 30 year behind maybe even more in many cases behind uh, the developed economies, uh, which also... The developed, behind the developed economies, like you're an early stage uh, ec- economic ex- investor. Exactly, early stage. So this in, in itself has, uh, has implications. One is obviously, uh, you know, the markets are not inefficient. You know, you, you can have more fear-driven sell-offs or more greed-driven, you know, kind of rallies. And in some cases, they become irrational. But that's when we come into play, active managers. And we are active managers. Uh, we run an active emerging market portfolio. When we see these type of irrational behavior, we can either step back and avoid you know, the pitfalls, or we can go in and, and it's almost like going into a chocolate factory and pick you know, the chocolates that you like, the best quality and, and you know, the companies that have the best uh, business models quality managements, distinct sustainable competitive advantages, and buy them at a distressed price, even though they're not distressed companies. You know, we, we feel in some countries, we, we feel the same way today. There are great advantages of being an emerging market investors now, uh, because you see that there's a lot of fear out there related to Russia, related to geopolitics, and also more and more now, also we, you have you're seeing Fed hikes starting sort of fear in the marketplace and there's contagion correlations going up. But that doesn't mean those companies, those businesses that we're looking at will disappear. It's the opposite. They will become stronger in these type of environments. They're going to get bigger because they have better balance sheets. They have better cash flows and they have a product or, or, or a service that is differentiated. 
So our job is really to navigate through noise and not be, uh, and, and yesterday I heard something really, uh, really important that applies to us. You don't need to, I mean, you, you, of course, you have to be intelligent to be an investor, but EQ matters a lot more than IQ. EQ, emotional intelligence. You need to not be, uh, you know, somewhat influenced by the headlines, but look at the facts. And, and that's what we're trying to do in, in our investments. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Chalar Sumik. He's joining us from the north of the border in the Pacific Northwest in British Columbia. He's Portfolio Manager, Global Emerging Markets at British Columbia Investment Management Corp. We are talking about the emerging markets and their lost decade and a half now. Chalar, I believe that they kind of peaked around 2007 and they never truly revisited their nominal highs from then. I mean, back then, people were talking about the United States had finally faced its reckoning with the financial crisis, that it took down the prestige of developed markets in the United States several pegs, that they weren't so much better than emerging markets, that indeed emerging markets would have a vindication coming out of it. But in the various Fed easing cycles coming out of it, it is disproportionately, as you said earlier, led to fresh money going into the United States and new highs for the United States and other asset classes such as Bitcoin and non-fungible tokens and emerging markets have really struggled to grab attention. So, uh, Robin, I think it's important to maybe talk about the future because it's, uh, it's important when, when it comes to investing to look at the facts, as I, I, I mentioned. It's uh, right now for you know, the emerging markets are trading at a, at a major discount to developed markets and to the United States. And this is after, after kicking out Russia, which was already super cheap for a reason. And many, right. many investors uh, who actually use like us an ESG framework have been quite, uh, quite cautious on, on Russia because there was a reason already from politics to governance to the different issues not to have many investors, uh, you know, like the dividends, low multiples, but were cautious on the ESG front, especially for I the mean, country. That's called, that was called a value trap. Russia was very cheap for a reason, that it was a very yeah. hairy story that you were worried about governance and maybe the, the geopolitical risks and what ultimately did happen, which shocked many spectators. Yeah. And, and, and it's, uh, it, it's interesting enough, you know, even taking out Russia, because Russia now is a standalone uh, country, is kicked out of MSCI emerging markets. But even taking out Russia, which... The benchmark index, which is the... The benchmark index is the MSCI emerging exact, markets index. Exactly. It's Morgan Stanley's, uh, you know, in, the index that, that's formed by Morgan Stanley. So MSCI EM index currently, even excluding Russia, still is uh, is, is a very... Uh, is trading at 10 times PE. This is, uh, this is on 2023 expectations, not th- this year. But that, that So, you know, to demystify it for our listeners, we're doing it for a public radio audience, 10 times earnings estimate Cor- versus the United States, the Standard & Poor's 500 is at, for example, Se- 17 what? times, 17, 18 times, and NASDAQ about 22 times. And this is after the correction in the United States. Of, you know, we've seen some ongoing correction right, right now. And despite the correction, the United States still look uh, fairly demanding, you know, in terms of multiples. But the other thing that I, I, I would like to highlight, if you take some of the uh, long-term quant investors, there's, a, there's a, another shop in, in Boston called GMO. Uh, and, and GM- yes, Grantham, Jeremy Grantham's shop. Exactly. And, and they come out with their seven-year 
asset class real return forecasts. And the latest that I can remember, which is probably from last month, they were showing that the only asset class that has potentially positive real return, and this is not nominal, this is after inflation, is the emerging markets. And particularly emerging markets value and the international small cap. Uh, So emerging markets, international small cap, and emerging market value were the only asset classes that they show uh, with positive real return. And of course, they're using some quantum... Because supposed, because ostensibly the United States, especially the tech-heavy NASDAQ, is so richly valued. It has had such a huge bull run in the 15 years since the financial crisis. I mean, even with the various corrections and COVID and everything, and the amount of Fed money thrown at it has really swelled United States stocks. I mean, real estate, everything, United States-centric assets... Uh, versus emerging markets assets are at a at a widening chasm of valuation. Correct, and and that's why I was uh, I was uh, uh, basically uh, arguing that looking at the last ten years may not be a good indication of the next ten years, and and of course the markets are volatile. There's a lot of uh, geopolitical events, uh, wars, uh, and it's it's you know one can get really emotional about the, about the headlines. But looking at the facts, looking at the valuations and growth profile of emerging economies, and, and also in, in our case, we're not necessarily investing for active portfolio managers. The index itself, we're trying to find those 70 to 80 companies that we feel have the best business attributes, have best growth and best managements, and invest in them. And in many cases, we find those opportunities abundant currently in those 15 to 20 emerging markets. And we're, we're happy that we're able to pick up really attractive value propositions. Uh, so so it's, it's kind of like a, when there's fear out there, there's also a ton of opportunity for, for long-term investors. Chalar, answer this knock on international investing generally. I had the privilege uh, when I was at Business Week of profiling John Bogle, Jack Bogle, the, the late Jack Bogle, you know, the founder of the Modern Index Fund. He's synonymous with Vanguard. And he is of the mind that you don't need to build a better mousetrap than a simple United States index fund. And S&P 500, you've heard this before, has so many multinationals in it, Coca-Cola, IBM, Boeing that cater to emerging markets and do it with United States transparency and institutional governance that you don't really need to do more than, you know, people get accused of having a home bias in the United States and preferring U.S. stocks and names that they know. But these guys do it well and they do it without the various currency risks and geopolitical risks and idiosyncratic risks of descending into a place like Turkey or Brazil and and putting up with some of the institutional funkiness in search of returns. That's a very good question, Robin. But uh, I, you know, I have to admit that I'm I'm a bit biased because I have uh, I have a personal view that the last forty years even will not be the same as the next forty years. And and what I mean by that is that the last forty years the world went through a very peaceful process. Uh, obviously, the Iron Curtain came down. You had, uh, you know, a central bank, you know, the, the dollar hegemony, and you know, the, the and and the Fed has been super helpful. And we've we've all come to know the term of Fed put. Anytime the U.S. economy went, the Fed put is that you have you have the Federal Reserve in the United States will have your back. Will ultimately bail out risk takers. Exactly, and then you're not going to lose money if you're invested in the stock market. 
you know, the world is peaceful, the, everybody trades, there's no geopolitical tensions or, or very little of, of it. And, and most of the tensions, you know, related to oil and, and energy assets. So we, we're going through uh, now a fairly different, you know, period, I guess, it, in a transition period where we move from a one uh, dominant economy led world to a multipolar world. So what, why th- does it matter, I guess, for us? I, I'm, I'm going to come to that because in a fairly benign environment, uh, you know, you could just say, okay, I'm going to move from asset class to asset class and I'm going to make 10% there, 20% there. I'm going to jump between asset classes and I can do passive, no problem, you know, passive because the whole set moves in tandem. Uh, now I think, you know, we need to have a better risk management and we need to pick, you know, those companies that will do better than others. So if you buy a basket case, let's say Coca-Cola, yes, it's a very well-run company, it's global, but do I want to own Coca-Cola World or do I want to own a Coca-Cola subsidiary or a company that is competing with Coca-Cola in India? Because maybe maybe the markets are selling off. India, as we know, is a is very expensive uh, you know, market because it's uh, it has huge growth, huge population, young demographics. But in a sell-off like today, if the sell-off continues, I would like to pick up the name that has full India exposure and not be diluted by a company that has exposure in every corner of the world because every corner of the world is not going to be moving up at the same rate. So even there, I, I, I would like to have nuances and differentiation and take an active decision and make an active uh, investment because I'm my radars on risk management are now a, a lot more heightened in this environment. And active decisions means that, you know, I would like to pick 70 companies and most of these companies have direct exposure to a structural growth trend with lesser risk than a blanket exposure. So you can have a better risk-adjusted return over the next decade. When you talk about risk-adjusted return, just to de-jargonize for that, that's you're getting a freer lunch, if you will. You're getting the return uh, without taking undue risk correct. and volatility. Correct. correct. I, I would like to have uh, less management, less business, less uh, you know macro risk. And that is the reason why in our approach... We're not, you know, many investors in the U.S., they would say, we don't think in terms of top-down, we just pick stocks. And some investors in emerging markets would tell you the same. They would say, oh, we're, we're just stock pickers. We are stock pickers uh, in our case, but we're also using a top-down approach. Roughly 30, 40% of what we do is related to that top-down Meaning we're looking at the macro risks, we're looking at the currency risks, we're looking at the political risks, and we're looking at the sentiment, the flows, and we try to differentiate where we want to be in these emerging markets versus where we don't want to be. So you can invest in a stock, for example, in Turkey, that gives you 40% return, but if you lose 60% on currency, then you lose as a dollar US dollar or Canadian dollar investor. So that's why we uh, we 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 believe the risk management and knowing, you know, the top-down macro political environment well 
will also make a big differentiation as a, in addition to picking the right companies and right business models. Full disclosure, please stay with us. This show podcast to NPR, NPR One, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate the show, recommend Full Disclosure to friends and family. Any episode is available in its entire extended length at any of these pod chasers. And of course, a shout out to our radio partners, WVTF Radio IQ across the great Commonwealth of Virginia. We are on WERA, Arlington, and Washington, D.C., WPVM up in gorgeous Asheville, North Carolina, and out west on KPPQ in Ventura, California. Please get in touch if you too would like full disclosure on your air. If you're just joining us, we are talking to Chalar Somek. He is Portfolio Manager, Global Emerging Markets at British Columbia Investment Management Corp. He's joining us from the great Pacific Northwest. We're talking about the lost decade and a half and what lies ahead, the case for emerging market investing. Chalar, I just want to read quickly from a, a headline, which you you know the contrarian in you must love bearish headlines, because here's one in The Economist. Are emerging economies on the verge of another lost decade in the latest issue of The Economist? And it writes that some emerging markets stand to benefit from an era of stagnation. Firms wary of dependence on China could move production to other low-cost places. Rich countries hoping to prevent poorer ones from drawing closer to Russia and China could lower trade barriers and increase investment abroad, boosting growth prospects in the process. High commodity prices, while they last, will buoy the fortunes of food, energy, and metals exporters. Overall, however, the higher debts and foregone investment in human and physical capital of the past few years will take a heavy toll. The International Monetary Fund forecasts that GDP across the emerging world will remain some 6% below its pre-pandemic trend at the end of 2024. I imagine that if you go back and look at the late 90s when emerging markets were radioactive and nobody wanted to touch them and all anything wanted to, all anybody wanted to talk about was dot com <laughs> and Nasdaq that you had a lot of the same sentiment. Yes, correctly and 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 I remember taking a trip to Indonesia not just right after the aftermath of uh, the Asian crisis, but uh, maybe a number of years. It could have been like, you know, five years after the Asian crisis. And even then, you know, there was huge valuation differential. Indonesia was still quite cheap. And you could buy a bank at very low multiple. And it was it was a great opportunity because people were still afraid of touching some of these emerging countries, emerging economies, emerging stocks. And that's when we made a big you know, differentiation as investors, we went in and we bought the largest, the best run bank at uh, lower than price to book, uh, which is, you know, basically uh, the, the... Kind of a liquidation, it, a liquidation it, value. It, You're able to buy something almost at liquidation. Exactly. And then three to four years down the road, that that uh, investment, you know, went up by threefold. So th this is the environment that we love. Uh, contrarian in me is not a contrarian for the sake of being a contrarian. Uh, contrarian in us is is because we do see these uh, these type of spots where we can cherry pick. I want to maybe also talk a little bit about you know go back to another topic that we've we've discussed. We take EM as one asset class, but within EM there are twenty emerging markets. Exactly, emerging. You know, just to again demystify it for our listeners, EM is shorthand for emerging markets on Wall Street. Exactly. So emerging markets is not a homogeneous asset class. Emerging markets have twenty countries, which are far from each other 
in many cases, very different economies. So take, for example, today, you know, people are worried about inflation. So the inflationary trends, the commodities are trading at a much higher levels. We as investors, we're looking at this as which countries within EM will benefit from these trends? You know, if we, we go back to 1970s style inflation, you know, let's assume that inflation is not transitory, but it's, uh, it stays for at least a number of years. Which countries, which sectors we would like to be exposed to that? And in, within EM, there are countries, for example, Latin America, to your point, had a lost decade, last decade. But if copper price, if gold price, if soft commodities, because of the conflict in, in Ukraine, Russia continues, then, you know, Latin America will be a key beneficiary from those trends. Or let's take gas. Yeah, I mean, for example, as you as you guys held my hand, I mean, when I toured South America at, at Business Week, very few people realize how uh, linked, for example, Peru, the entire economy is to copper and then how hardwired that is to China or how much of a breadbasket to the hemisphere Brazil and Argentina are, whether you're talking about soybeans, vegetable oil, coffee, obviously, that these are very different cases. I mean, Argentina is a frontier market. It was a failed economy. It was a pariah economy after its default 20 years ago. But Brazil has been struggling to reassert itself after it had a glorious first decade of the century. So, so that's Brazil. Let's take the Brazil and maybe peel the onion. It's uh, During Lula administration, you know, uh, before Lula went to prison and then now he's running for the president again, Brazil had the best performance among emerging markets, not because Lula was a genius and Lula was doing everything right. It was because of commodities and the prices were high and income people were getting jobs because these industries, as we all know, these industries employ people and the income trickles down. So we may, again, I mean, we, I'm not making here a super cycle, you know, case for commodities, but at the same time, one needs to think that some economies, some sectors, Will benefit, and and by the way, we don't have to invest in commodities to benefit from this trend. We can invest in consumer names because, as I said, there will be job creation, and there will be trickling down, and therefore people will have more purchasing power and will spend more. Well, Chalar, explain this to me. I don't understand why it's been a bull case when commodity prices zoom. Whether you're talking about agricultural inputs or oil or copper or coffee, why that disproportionately helps emerging markets? Wouldn't they be hurt by commodity prices shooting up as well, especially in the food basket? If you're some poorer countries and the uh, percentage of disposable income is, is eaten up disproportionately by food and fuel expenses, just because your country has kind of a national commodity that puts a lot of people at work. Why is that a, do you see what I'm saying? Why is that a bull case? Why are inflation and commodity surges not hurting these countries? Again, uh, I will not mention that the emerging markets as a whole asset class will benefit. Here, I was trying to make a differentiation within the emerging markets, there will be beneficiaries versus those who hurt. Let's again, get into more detail. Who do we think may get hurt from higher commodities? Of course, there are big importers of commodities, especially those countries where income per capita is low. And a big portion of your income as a person, if it comes from basically, uh, or it goes to food spending or e right. energy spending uh, to transportation, then it will really get hurt. You, you will get hurt. 
And who are those countries? I mean, those countries, I would, I would mention some of the frontier South Asia economies like uh, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, which we're already seeing Sri Lanka going you know, into a default situation as a country. We're already seeing those impacts. And then there, there are also those economies that are not well managed, either politically or, and or economically challenged like Turkey. You have a triple digit inflation, you have a current account deficit, you have a pretty messy politics, you know, country run by someone who claims to be an economist, but who may not even have a degree and making those, those decisions that are not rational. So, of course, as an active investor, we will stay away from those countries, from those places that we feel risks are not well managed. Chalar, in the few minutes we have left with you, I have to ask you about, you know, it's it's another bull case and a knock. And again, I'm not trying to call emerging markets a monolith. You have such a diversity of economies across Asia, Latin America, some in Eastern Europe. But what about China? Uh, to the best of my knowledge, China has not had a hard landing in the 20 plus years since it was added to the World Trade Organization. And China's a voracious demander of oil, of grains, of pork products, of all of these commodity inputs that these smaller emerging markets can export. And as we said before, if you're looking as a as a Western country, such as a Germany or United States, to diversify away from China, you would invest in maybe some satellite frontier or emerging economies like Vietnam or Malaysia or you know, you you name it, uh, people that, you know, the Philippines that can fill this up. But is the knock that these countries would really, no country in the emerging market portfolio writ large would be anywhere without China being strong? Correct. And China, is, it's, uh, it matters a lot, as, as you pointed out. It's about 30% of our universe. And I can maybe confidently say that a lot of what's happening in China is self-inflicted. So it's not necessarily a result of what's happening around the world, but it's self-inflicted wounds. By the same token, they can be cured by China itself. And what I mean by that is, is take the zero COVID policy, for example. It is uh, the policy of the leader, and it's bringing down the economy because it shuts uh, the big cities and, and, and therefore the businesses and even consumers cannot go out and shop. But at the same time, it is a temporary phenomenon. We all know that they cannot do that forever. At some stage, they need to change course. Maybe the, their internal vaccine, mRNA development will cure that because they're going to start basically uh, applying their own vaccine to elderly. But eventually it will open and the economy will pick up. And, and this type of worry currently about the economy uh, slowing down, the sentiment being very weak, the market selling off will be a huge opportunity to buy those stocks, those companies that we feel has the best quality. So that's first, zero COVID policy. And it's uh, we know that it cannot be permanent. We know that they cannot shut down forever. The second part of China is the real estate angle. The real estate sector has gone through a boom and now is going through a bust. And to give Chinese government and Chinese regulators credit, they're not trying to do what they did during the GFC which is coming out with uh, abundant money printing. During the global financial crisis. Exactly. During the global, global, financial, global crisis. financial crisis. And and they're not, you know, printing a ton of money and, and, and trying to plug, you know, and trying to kind of, uh, you know, save everybody. They're not trying to do that, which is, which to give them credit, they're being disciplined. Uh, and in a way, you know, the real estate sector will, uh, is curing itself. 
because it's going through a lot of restructurings. Companies have actually uh, are selling assets. Uh, so there's a lot of correction going on. But even that in and itself cannot be a major, this is not 2007, 2008, the U.S. A lot of Chinese, uh, you know, Chinese debt is owed to Chinese. Uh, so it's a very localized type of phenomenon that can be cured, uh, you know, by, by local policies. So real estate will, will, is dragging down, but it's in the midst of its correction. And then if you take a two to three year view, I would say that it's not going to be, uh, you know, materially uh, bringing the economy down. And therefore, with uh, COVID easing, uh, COVID policies easing, you're seeing now some monetary stimulus coming out from their central bank. You're seeing more and more infrastructure spending, you know, because they still need to build the Western and the central country. Uh, they need to build highways. They need to build basically roads. So they need to build uh, utilities, electricity, transmission, pipelines, everything. So they, they still have a lot more infrastructure to do. All in all, while we're cautious on China currently, it's hard to be too pessimistic about the future because this is an economy that has, uh, you know, created a miracle that, that, that diversified its economy to, and now you have higher technology. The stock market itself is extremely diversified. We have, uh, and, and we can find those companies that are becoming global brands coming out of China. So the Coca-Colas that, that you were talking about, we're, we're trying to find those companies from China that are going, going to become, you know, the brands, global brands, uh, especially. No and I will close. I will close by saying that the United States, for much of its history, if you go back to the uh, 18th century and much of the 19th century, was an emerging market, and even some emerging markets now, like South Korea, that are purportedly emerging markets, they're on the brink of becoming developed markets. Right? You have Hyundai, Samsung, really world class brands that are coming out of a country that was maybe, I read somewhere that its economy was the size of Ghana's in the middle of the 20th century. And it just shows you how much these economies can grow. Exactly. I'm, and we, as emerging market investors, we're looking for growth. Uh, we're, we're looking for, uh, you know, the best, uh, in, to invest in best companies, best business models, but trading and, and, and being valued at a much cheaper valuation, much cheaper price uh, compared to the developed markets. Because they're part of the emerging world, they're not well covered, and there are inefficiencies in the marketplace. Chalar Somek, he is Global Emerging Markets Portfolio Manager with the British Columbia Investment Management Corp. As you should know, you are always welcome on this show, and I appreciate your voice on emerging markets and, and, and being such a great source for me, even going back to my business weekdays. Thank you so much, Robin. It was nice to, to talk to you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle Full D Radio. And please get in touch to carry Full Disclosure on your air. If you are just joining us, we were discussing how emerging markets might find their way out of their lost decade. I thought it would be fun to flash back to a story of globalization gone very wrong. My 2019 interview with filmmaker Michael Mann, you know him from Miami Vice and Heat, and investigative author Elaine Shannon on the DEA's global pursuit of elusive evil genius drug and weapons kingpin Paul LaRue. Murder, encryption, coercion, evasion, corruption, North Korea, Liberia, missiles. It's quite stranger than fiction. 
Joining us from NPR, New York City, opposite Bryant Park, a veritable true crime lover's fest. Man, uh, Michael Mann, four-time Oscar-nominated Hollywood filmmaking guru behind Heat, insider, Last of the Mohicans, and who can forget Miami Vice from my hometown. How are you, sir? Very good. It's uh, great to be here. Joining him, Elaine Shannon, author of Hunting LaRue, the inside story of the DEA takedown of a criminal genius and his empire. The veteran investigative journalist spent years on this. Michael Mann and crew are now adapting it for a movie. How are you? Just great. Thanks so much for having us here. Thank you. And they're joined in studio by retired DEA special agents Tom Sindrick and Lou Millione. Thank you again, all of you, for letting me herd the cats this way. Great to be here. Uh, just to jump ball, actually, Michael Mann, um, I look back at Miami Vice, which I fell in love with, you know, going back to the early 80s. I, I know you you were buttonholed about it endlessly in elevators, wherever you go. I mean, with all the body of work you've done in the past 35 years, but comparing the villains of Miami Vice, and I'm thinking Calderon in season one and kind of the characters that you brought through that ensemble cast to this guy, um, you know, Paul Calder LaRue, who was just an absolute genius, sociopathic mastermind using cryptocurrencies and encryption software, everything. It's kind of like comparing, a, you know, an old, old West gun to like an M- M16. How do you compare him? It's n- night and day. He, he constitutes a uh, kind of a magnum leap uh, or leap uh, order of magnitude in uh, uh, in in a criminal genius, uh, a transnational crime lord of an altogether new kind. That's, that's Paul LaRue. He doesn't and did not self-identify as part of a criminal subculture. Um, he came up in completely different straight ways as a, uh, as a programmer writing encryption for major banks, governments, and, um, and moved into uh, an area that I don't even know that he defined as any uh, – it's, it's not as if he walked through a threshold and said, oh, I'm now going to become a criminal and I wasn't before. It just was a logical progression. But he's a uh, genius, a sociopath and fascinating and introduced a revolutionary modality in transnational organized crime. Yeah, I would think it would be enough for a person to be motivated by greed or delusions of grandeur, empire building. But there's something at the base of this guy, an antipathy, a sociopathy, a misanthropy almost. I don't know if he was, you know, ignored, if he was bullied. I mean, he got his revenge on the world by almost becoming, I think, the closest thing to a 21st century Dr. Evil. I mean, a lot of people would leave well enough alone, but this guy had to kind of, you know, gild the lily of evil and kill people himself and come up with elaborate ruses and, and, and constantly be plotting to do things that were way past the threshold of what you thought were, were necessary for him to sustain his empire. That's right. He's, he's kind of Dr. No for real. Uh, it's not fantasy. It's reality. He's, uh, um, and he, he, uh, he, in fact, he even, wanted, he even wanted an island or had an island because he thought all villains are supposed to have islands. But in, in becoming the kind of uh, Elon Musk of transnational organized crime and overturning all that had existed before, uh, he, he became a, a unique unique figure, and there's probably going to be more like him. Elaine, when were you first tipped off to this story? I was uh, embedded or buried, let's say, deep inside uh, transnational organized crime as it funds terrorism. I'd been in Afghanistan. I was looking at 
Hezbollah, I was looking at the Taliban, and then I heard about the arrest of a brilliant man that was like no other, naturally. I wanted to know more, and so I dug in. This is the result. I've talked to hundreds of sources. I've never seen anything like this guy. Now, Michael Mann wrote in his foreword uh, to the book, uh, and I'm quoting here, he and those who have followed traffic in advanced weapons systems, tonnage of drugs and exotic fissile materials, and engage in money laundering. They corrupt struggling small countries into failed nation states to provide transport hubs and service regional conflicts. This new world's innovator and its architect is Paul Calder LaRue, close quote. And when I read that, I thought that this guy, um, you know, it's kind of the, the, the information technology person, and he's almost like a, an arbitrageur. He's like, where can I most easily corrupt people? Um, a country like Liberia, which is always toggling in and out of failed state status. I mean, people are completely viable. He has complete control over the system. You deal with another country with rampant corruption in the Philippines when you realize I am a guy behind my desk. I'm kind of everywhere, but I'm nowhere. And in this, almost in a kind of a global gig economy sense, everybody is fungible and everybody is for hire, Elaine. Almost. Uh, There were a few people who couldn't buy. He didn't know which ones he couldn't buy, and that was his downfall. Tom and Lou, uh, you know, in my research of the DEA and dealing with, uh, you know, very cold-eyed drug kingpins of yesteryear in Miami and in Colombia and in Mexico— There was this idea, look, it's nothing personal. Everyone is acquirable, including and especially DEA people, la tres letras, you know, FBI, DEA. You see all this stuff that's coming out in the Chapo Guzman trial and conviction of of people that he bought. Now, I don't understand in in, in reading about you and your special elite unit, you know, I'm looking at this. How do you inoculate it from corruption? You're not the best paid people in the world, and yet you're around unbelievable uh, access to money, to, to people who can be acquired, to women, to luxury resorts. How do you come in and have almost this Franciscan purity to you? There's really no purity. And, and you know, the only, if I could, you know, gently push back, the idea that, uh, you know, agents can be corrupted by this, it certainly could happen in an extremely rare case, but there was no temptation. There was no temptation at all. The, the, the men and women at DEA that I've served with and I've worked with, it didn't matter if there was 10 million in a room, a thousand pounds of gold and and uh, thirty million dollars worth of cocaine. It didn't matter because we were doing what we were supposed to do, and it was never really an issue. It wasn't ever a struggle to try to stay on the straight and narrow. We don't walk that line. We don't get near to that line. Our vice is going after targets like Larue and putting the cases together to get uh, people like that. Wait, how do you take that for granted, though? And I'm not I'm not trying to be cynical or skeptical. That is, I you know, you're paid a government salary. Uh, it's a very tough job. You're away from your families. Your life is constantly on the line. How at the outset, out of training, do you make sure, it, it, I, let's not say you, but everybody else in your network, that there isn't a weak link or somebody who is much more susceptible to the siren call of corruption? There's, first of all, if there was a weak link, we'd see it. We'd sniff it out. Um, I'm not so naive to think that everybody, we're all human, right? People are fallible, so that can happen. But... Um, it's not. It's it's really not hard. I mean, it's not hard. It's not even an issue. Um, I mean, I've been around. I, I served for twenty years. Tommy can speak. He served for just under thirty years, and uh, we've been in lots of situations where no one's watching. Um, we're in ungoverned spaces doing these cases, following the rule of law with counterparts. Like you mentioned, Liberia. I would I would quibble and say it's not necessarily a failed state. I know it was. It's it's kind of in this nascent um, peace that it's going on. You know, going through right now. 
But if it wasn't for people like the, the counterparts in Liberia who couldn't be bought, and they had every reason to, you know, be bought. They, they had nothing. They're in a, in, a, in a country where they're very poor, you know, across the board. They weren't able to be bought. So uh, we've been impressed across the board. There are people that want to do the right thing, and they're going to navigate the difficult path to get the right thing done. Michael Mann, sometimes you get you get people, and I'm, I'm looking at some of the crimes delineated. I mean, the bill of particulars in this thing. The crimes of Paul Calder LaRue, you, you can't make some of this stuff up. Um, agreeing to sell a militant group portable surface-to-air missiles for attacks on U.S. and U.N. aircraft involved in opium crop eradication. Uh, sales carry a penalty of up to life in prison because many terrorist groups are seeking these weapons in order to down civilian airliners, commit mass murder, and paralyze international travel and... Commerce. Another crime, creating a new kind of cell phone detonator for terrorist bombs to be used in East Asia. Uh, here's another one. It's more mundane. Conspiring to violate U.S. laws against selling prescription drugs without legitimate prescriptions. His e-commerce pharmaceutical empire was the largest illegal internet pill business ever detected by the DEA. It is known to have made illegal drug sales totaling $300 million. The real number may be much greater. Uh, M- Michael Mann, it's like, uh, you know, no offense to Elaine, it's like this guy practically wrote the screenplay for you with all of these caricature type crimes. Um, y- you know, you go out of your way to, to touch every possible third rail. You're talking national security, narcotics. It really gets down to motivation. And by the way, it does with the DEA agents you're talking about as well. Because in order, because oddly enough, this is kind of a similarity, Paul LaRue's motivation is not just to make money. Uh, and it, 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 Paul LaRue's motivation, he was motivated to do uh, processes, invent ways to do things that no one else had ever done. That's what really got his blood running. Whether or not he bought a yacht, whether or not there were some big numbers attached to it or kind of points on the scoreboard, but the real motivation that drove him forward was to do something that no one had ever quite done before. And that took him, that made him into a vanguard and, and, and helped propel him through uh, into new modes of uh, kind of new business plans, new modes in which organized crime functions and operates. With the, all the DEA agents that, that I've met, and particularly with Lou and Tom and everybody around here, their motivation isn't to, um, you know, buy a second home in Colorado. Their motivation when you cut through it is to make um, is to make very, very difficult cases, to be the tip of the spear um, moving against targets. Kind of, it's kind of the motivation of a mountain climber to climb a mountain. And then you increase your skill sets and you could do a more difficult climb. And that's the ambition. And that's why the money is kind of immaterial. And, uh, and the higher you go into the echelons of really proactive, very, very unusual, very aggressive uh, law enforcement, I've often found with the best of the detectives, you often find that. Uh, Elaine, you would think that he would be decidedly nonviolent. I mean, he's a person who wants efficiency, uh, fungibility. You don't want friction. He's constantly trying to improve the methods and distribution and supply. But And yet he ordered and financed the murders of at least seven people. And I don't know if in reading your book, if he necessarily did it with gusto, but he was, uh, uh, you know, kind of decidedly not bothered by it. That's right. In fact, uh, the agents tell me that he started enjoying it and wanted to do more of it. And it was a really good thing that they caught him when they did because it was going to escalate. He's, uh, it was a stupid mistake to threaten many of his employees. And in fact, as I tell in the book, uh, the mercenaries and the, uh, some of the other employees had a pact 
where he would get mad, he would get frustrated, he would threaten to kill somebody, and he would tell one of the mercenaries to do it, and they supposedly had a deal where uh, if you need to kill me, we'll just fake the murder, we'll get some fake blood, we'll take some fake photos, and then I'll disappear. You know, I want to read uh, from a portion in your book that kind of you know was eye-popping to me. I'm from Iran. I cover the situation and, and you know, arbitrage of, of, you know, sanctions skirting quite a bit. Um, you wrote that LaRue and his emissaries were told that if he came up with a guidance system for Iran's short and medium-range rockets and missiles, he would be paid $100 million in gold. He was all in, calculating that he could make himself indispensable to the Iranians. It wasn't just the money, though. A hundred million was an attractive figure. He embraced, quote, projects, as he called new ventures, with a passion he never expressed for his children, wives, lovers, or kin. For him, the Iranian opportunity was like walking into a room full of fresh chessboards. He saw it as an opportunity to scale up to a larger arena, from weapons to weapon systems and eventually weapons of mass destruction. I struggle with all of that because I cover business and there are people who are motivated by more mundane things and they, they want to do it and they want to get out and not get caught. Uh, but there's something deeply traumatic and unresolved about his upbringing that he, he really needed to be a Dr. Evil figure. And I only thought that that was the province of, of Hollywood caricature or sitcoms. But no, this was the real deal. It is. And this is all backed up with emails that he sent contemporaneously. This wasn't invented after the fact by him to get more attention. He had. There are in engineers in the world who worked on this secret navigation project, the missile navigation project. If you read the Israeli press, which I do, uh, one of the hot topics is the Iranian accuracy project, and it is aimed at improving the missiles that they, Iran gives to Hezbollah and Hamas, uh, he would. Paul was recruited for that project, not saying that he necessarily succeeded, but if you read the press recently, the Iranian missiles have become more accurate, and that is very chilling. He wanted to do it for some kind of perverse satisfaction. I cannot tell you why, but I know he did. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are talking to Michael Mann, Hollywood filmmaking legend behind Heat, Insider, Last of the Mohicans, and, of course, Miami Vice. He uh, was deeply involved with Elaine Shannon's book, Hunting LaRue, the inside story of the DEA takedown of a criminal genius and his empire, as were retired DEA special agents Tom Sindrick and Lou Milione. Uh, Tom, sir. Yes. Can you comment on inside Washington and across, you know, Interpol and these other things, the the uh, the need for both cooperation and discretion to take on a shadowy enterprise that traverses not just, you know, international narcotics trafficking, but, you know, dancing with the Iranians, dancing with the North Koreans on meth. I mean, I, I don't even know who the point person for these things is in, in, in D.C. Do you call Condi Rice? Do you call the Secretary of State? I mean, who controls all of it? I would say nobody controls all of it, to be quite honest with you. They all think they control it. They all think they know it. But unless your boot's on the ground, you really don't have a clue. You get briefings from people who got briefings from people who got briefings from people. They really don't have a full grasp of it. They think they do. They don't. A guy like LaRue is completely unique. We attacked the shadowy figure through the use of confidential sources, very simplistic, very direct. The only people who truly grasped the significance of LaRue were the people within our unit, 
uh, our boss, Lou Milioni and Derek Maltz at the time, and ultimately the people in charge at the DEA. When you went and tried to explain this to people, they, they had almost a disbelief at times. Why, I don't know. That there, there was a false notion on occasion that why would a guy involved in weapons also be involved in drugs? Why would a guy in terrorism be involved in drugs? They didn't believe these things crossed. And I'm talking about the defense department, the intelligence community. That's where the breakdown is. They fail to understand that these guys cross all boundaries. They don't care what you think. They don't care what Washington thinks. They care what they're doing. And nobody really truly grasps it. But here's the thing. As you add on necessarily layers of international cooperation, you necessarily have other potential tripwires for this enterprise to be informed. I mean, if you have to bring in the UK and South America and East Asia and the Chinese and, and, and the Filipinos, how do you maintain the quality assurance, the kind of the sanctity of the mission? How we did it was we kept it very tight-knit, the 960 group. We operated within our boundaries in areas where we felt very comfortable, such as Liberia, such as Thailand, where we knew, where we, knew we had trusted, trusted counterparts, where we knew we could keep a tight noose and around everything. If you told me we had to go to the UK, we'd be in trouble. I mean, people talk. It gets out within the community. We kept a close noose on this. We spent. We talked to the people who needed to be talked to in the countries where we were operating. We talked to the bosses that needed to be talked to within the areas of operation we were working in. That was a flashback to my 2019 talk with filmmaker Michael Mann and investigative author Elaine Shannon on the DEA's global pursuit of an evil genius drug and weapons kingpin. You can catch the entire interview wherever you get your podcasts. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. We podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate, and recommend us. Hello to our broadcast listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, WERA, WPVM, and KPPQ. Again, please message me to run full disclosure on your air. I am Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening and back with you next week. <laughs>